join me as we continue to worship the Lord in a time of prayer as we ask God by His Spirit to illumine our hearts and our minds depending upon Him for not only the interpretation but the application of the good news of the gospel. Father, we come before you dependent upon you. In Psalm 95, one of the things that the people of God are exhorted to, it says, today if you hear his voice, and we hear your voice in your word, do not harden your hearts as was done by our fathers of old. So Father, I pray for that for us. I pray for soft, teachable hearts towards your scripture, that your scripture would have success accomplishing what you have set out and what you have purposed for it to accomplish. We believe and we acknowledge, Father, that your word is inspired and breathed out by you and is useful for teaching us and training us and rebuking us and equipping us for every good work. And so, Father, we come before you, dependent on your spirit, to give us a sense of its meaning and its usefulness in our lives according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you are able, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, which comes this morning from Mark chapter 15 verses 21 through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, and Cyrene is in North Africa, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. commentator speaking on this particular passage puts it this way. He says, the way Mark tells his story is that he builds up the story of Jesus' crucifixion through small pictures, small vignettes, one detail after another that together tell the story in a clipped sequence, moving swiftly from scene to scene. At no point does he stay for long on a particular theme except for the main one which emerges over and over, that Jesus is crucified as the king of the Jews. It is because he is bearing the fate and the destiny of Israel as its anointed representative that his death means what it means to Mark. We've been saying from the beginning of our study of the gospel of Mark, and we're moving now towards the final few weeks of looking at the narrative, that Mark divides his narrative into two halves both around the theme of Jesus the King. The first half, chapters 1 through 8, is who is this king? What is he like? What's his personality like? What's his character like? So Mark goes through a lot of vignettes of healing, how he treats people, the calling of the first disciples, his power. We're looking at who is this king and what is he like? The second half of Mark's gospel, chapters 9 through 16, 
is all on the move to Jerusalem, and it's all about what did the king come to do. What did this king come to do? And here we have it. The king came to die on a cross, to bear the sins of his people, to be the king of the Jews, and to, in a sense, reform and reimagine and remake a new Israel. And so we learn from this portion of Mark's narrative two things concerning Jesus' death. We learn that Jesus dies as a suffering servant. And he dies fulfilling the royal task, the royal mission that was given him. He dies as a suffering servant, and he dies fulfilling the royal commission, the royal task. Let's look at each one of these. First of all, he dies at the suffering servant. We looked last week at the theme of Jesus, our substitute. Peter put it, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. And that amazes me as you think about that. What does it mean to bring us to God? The point of his dying, substituting himself for us, dying once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, is so that he could live with us, to bring us to himself. Think about what the Apostle Paul said, and not just to bring us to himself, but to bring us to one without, free from blemish, above blame, above reproach, free from accusation. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ because Jesus' righteous, righteous record has been imputed to us. So that we're free from it. Do you believe it? You're free from any accusation. Nobody can say you're not qualified. Jesus was qualified for you. Nobody can say you're not good enough. And he did this to bring us to God. I don't know about you, but I find this to be unbelievably good news indeed. And it's intended to draw us to a life of worship, service, communion with God, adoration of him. But it then kind of raises a question in my mind. Okay? I think about this and I sit there and go, this is wonderful news, isn't it? This is the port. You should nod your head. This is good news. Yes, okay? So far you're with me. I got to really make sure what participatory sermon this morning will do. I'll make sure you're with me. Okay? You have the righteous record of Jesus to bring you to the presence of God. Let me ask you a question. Why do we not see more of the sweetness of his grace, more of the wonder of his grace, more of the transforming power? Why do we not see more power in our lives? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever wondered on a practical level, why do we not see, if we have this, righteous record of Jesus, that to God, you are just as gorgeous, just as beautiful, just as loving, just as devoted, just as holy as Jesus is, and that's your identity. Your identity is not a mother or father, not a husband or wife, not a worker. Your identity is just as righteous as Jesus is. Why do we not see more power in our lives? And I think this text hints at some of the answer. If we look at to apply this, See, the only way that you will ever get to the transforming power, the sweetness of the grace of God, the sweetness of the cross, the only way we will ever find the cross to be a transformative power is you have to go through first the offensiveness of the cross. You have got to wrestle with and go through the dynamic of the offensiveness of the cross, for the cross is offensive. Think about what Paul said to the church at Galatia. Galatians 5, verse 11, he said, if I'm still preaching circumcision, now let's put this what this is in kind of its historical context. 
Circumcision, which was the marker that identified Jewish people as Jewish. It's that which they placed their identity on. It's that which defined them. And Paul has just finished saying, uh, by the way, that's irrelevant to God. That which you base your identity on has no relevance, no meaning to God. Now Paul says, if I'm still preaching this, why am I still being persecuted? In that case... He says, the offense of the cross has been removed. See, the cross is, by nature, offensive. Look at this text. Not just the cross, but everything that leads up to it. Look at these vignettes, these clips from the suffering of Jesus. And see whether you are offended by the cross. The text begins with the man Simon from the North African area of Cyrene compelled by the Roman soldiers to carry the cross of Jesus because Jesus was too weak from the sleeplessness, from the constant perpetual beatings to be able to carry his own cross. Then then they are brought to the scene of the execution, a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. I think Mark intentionally telling us these details to depict the horror of the cross. As one writer put it, he is heightening our sense of horror. Not only what is happening to Jesus, but the very place, the geography where it is happening resonates with dismay and death. Mark is intentionally wanting us to enter into the dismay and death, the offense, even from the geography, even from the place where Jesus is crucified. The next vignette, you have Jesus being drugged. Myrrh mixed with wine intended to sedate him to lessen his senses of what's going on. But he refuses it in order not to be sedated from the horror of what he is facing. He is fulfilling as the representative, he is being crucified as the king of the Jews. He is fulfilling what it says in Isaiah 51 verse 17, where the prophet says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drunk to the dregs the bowl. The cup of staggering. Here's Jesus drinking to the dregs the cup of God's wrath in place as the substitute, as the representative. The destiny for Jerusalem has fallen upon him. And as we read, as Shane read for us earlier in the service, out of Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Think about that for a second. God just didn't allow this. It was his divine will. It was his ordination. He ordained for Jesus to be crushed. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. I think one of the most difficult things that we have to go through in our life is our suffering. And especially to try and comprehend why God might allow or ordain such suffering, especially when it just appears to us and seems so meaningless to us. And recognize one of the things is we do not know and we cannot know the answer to the why question. We're oftentimes not told why. Job was never given the reason, you know, kind of the backstory. story. Remember the conversation God had with Satan? Job was never given that backstory. But here's what we do know, and I think some of it is that is what God is trying to do in our lives, shaping us and conforming us to the image of Christ. Because here's what we do know, and here's the perspective we can have. 
What we do know is that it can't be that God doesn't love us or care for us. Because think of how much the Father loves the Son. And the Father cares for the Son. And never stops caring for or loving the Son. And yet, He is willing to ordain His death, the death of His Son, so that we could live. Do you feel the offense of the cross? See, I think too often we're a little bit too superficial. We hear the teaching of the cross, the teaching that says that only by the death of Christ you can be saved. And if you believe in what Jesus did for you on the cross, you're completely accepted. But the Bible teaches if you hear that, you will be offended by it. And that the only way for you to get to the sweetness, and it is sweet to the transforming power of that, is for you to go through the offense of the cross. See, Mark is showing us the horror of the cross for in order for us to wrestle with the offense of the cross. Let me just give one biblical illustration of this. Back in Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, you have John the Baptist, the forerunner, preparing the way for the Lord. And he's in prison. And he's hearing what Jesus is doing all around him. And he sends his disciples, his followers, to go check it out. And they ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answers them this way. He says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And then Jesus says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Those are curious words, aren't they? What could that mean? Blessed is the man who takes no offense at me. It certainly cannot mean that everybody in the world who never thought enough about Jesus Christ to be offended is blessed. It can't mean anybody who is not offended. So what he must mean is anybody who really comes to grips with what he has come to do and why he's come to do it will feel the offense. Blessed is the one who's wrestled with it, who's come to grips with it, who has dealt with it, who has gone through it. Blessed is the one who has felt the offense of the cross but who hasn't taken offense at Jesus. See, we will never actually feel the sweetness of the cross. You'll never actually come to grips with it until you get offended, until you see the outrageousness of it and come to grips with it. See, why is it so offended? What does the cross mean? The cross is the greatest monument to our helplessness, wickedness, and impotence. See, think about this. Why is Jesus going through everything he's going through? Not just the... See, we tend to limit and reduce the cross to just the physical pain. The cross is so much more than that. The indignity of the mockings and the reviling and the derision and the being spat upon and the beatings. He's going through all of that. Why did Jesus die for you? See, think, if we believe that all good people everywhere can somehow find God, if we're just sincere enough, if we just seek Him enough and pray to Him, if we think it's possible to come to God any other way, we're not helpless. We're not powerless. We're not impotent. See, here's what the cross is saying. Either you are hopelessly lost, completely and hopelessly impotent 
and lost. And then Jesus' death on the cross makes sense because you're helpless and there's no other way. Because if there's another way, think about it. His death is not only repugnant, it's evil and cruel and unjust. Because here he is dying as an innocent man who does not deserve to die. So either there is no other way to God except through Christ, which is the offense of the cross, because the cross is a declaration of your utter helplessness and powerlessness. And until you feel that, until you wrestle with that and come to grips with that and know that in your life, you won't feel the power, the transforming power of the cross. Until you feel your utter helplessness, we're talking 100% helplessness. You won't see the wonder and the sweetness of the cross. See, Jesus is dying here as the suffering servant. But look what else. He also dies to fulfill the royal task. It is without a doubt intentional that Mark records both in verse 26 and verse 32, referring to Jesus as the king of the Jews. Verse 26, and this inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And then verse 32, and let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. One commentator writes about this. He says, the custom in crucifixions was to fix a placard on the crossbeam indicating the crime of the condemned man. In Jesus' case, the crime in the eyes of Roman law, was that he had claimed to be king of the Jews. And so just to make the point sharper, Jesus was crucified between two bandits, brigands. And again, this commentator points out these were not small-time thieves or crooks. These were revolutionaries. At the center of Mark's picture and of his thought is the profound reflection, Jesus is dying the death that properly belonged to the violent kingdom people, the nationalist guerrillas, which is why verse 27, Mark makes the point, and Mark is always doing this, remember he's going swiftly from one scene to another, he says, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. But the Gospel of Luke, Luke brings it out and elaborates on this much further. Let me read from you from, for you for, from Luke's account. In Luke chapter 23, we read two others, and Luke makes the point, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right, one on his left, and one of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Remember the nationalistic expectation. Save yourself and us. There's his expectation. If you are the Christ, it means physical. Take us down from this cross. Messiahs do not die. We're revolutionaries. We're, if you're the Messiah, let's go. We'll bring in the kingdom that we expect. And then the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
Isn't it ironic that earlier on in the Gospel of Mark, back in Mark chapter 10, Jesus said to James and John, to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And we take a look and we now know for whom it has been prepared that they should find themselves at Jesus' right hand and left when he is enthroned as king. Because here's the upside down kingdom. Jesus is being enthroned as king. But it's king because he is staying on the cross. Not because he's getting down from the cross. This is his royal task. This is certainly not what was expected. Why, in verse 29, it says, And those who passed by derided him, made fun of him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And then the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved saved others. He can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel. Do you hear the mocking? If you were the King of Israel, this is what it must mean. If you were the king of Israel, this is what you would do. You would come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. In other words, if you were the king of Israel, under our terms, what makes sense to us, as we decide, we would believe. But this is not how the kingdom comes. This doesn't come by Jesus coming down from the cross. The kingdom comes by Jesus staying on and enduring the cross. This is how he takes on and fights and defeats sin and hell and death and evil and injustice through the indignity of the cross. This is what he came to do. And look at what we learn from the fact that this was Jesus' royal task. That he is the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, the king of the new, reimagined, reformed Israel. He is dying for us as our representative, and it shows us that we truly do need a king. We can't live without a king. And yet, as Tim Keller says, he says, this account surely is pointing out to us the malice that the human heart bears towards God. As it says in Romans 8, verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Mark is seeking to reveal that the human heart is not neutral, but rather is naturally hostile to God's claims. The basic principle of it is that we hate anything that threatens our own self-sovereignty. We want to be our own masters and Lord. We want to determine our own future, our own fate. We want to be in control of our own life. And the absolute claims of the true God are utterly repugnant to our hearts, whoever we are. And the claim of God is that Jesus is the king of the world. To respond to Jesus in a neutral fashion is utterly impossible at least not intellectually or spiritually honest. Listen to this paragraph from C.S. Lewis, probably one of his most famous paragraphs out of his book, Mere Christianity. Lewis writes, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He says, Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. They scourged him. They spit on him. They divided his clothes among themselves. They mocked him. They derided him. They reviled him. And here he is led out to be crucified. You cannot stay neutral. This is the king of the world. This is how he is bringing his kingdom to the earth. Friends, what are you going to do with Jesus? He is the suffering servant fulfilling the royal task by staying on a cross. Is he to you, in Lewis's words, a madman, a fool, or something worse? Or do you fall at his feet, crying out, you are my Lord and my God. Think about his mother Mary when his birth was announced to her by the angel Gabriel. She treasured these things up in her heart, and what did she say? Behold, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. What are you going to do? And Christians, what are you doing with Jesus every day? Apathy, neutrality, saying I believe in him in order to get to heaven, and then living for yourself, living for your comfort, is not intellectually honest. Lewis is right. He is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is a lord. Which is he to you? Father, I do thank you for Jesus. And I pray our deepest prayer needs to be that we would come to a deeper and deeper understanding of the cross. It's offensiveness so that we can move through it to see its sweetness. That it's through the cross, through its indignity, that we come to see its sweetness that... It is the way and it is the only way for us to be accepted by you. Father, help us to wrestle with these things. Help us to be willing to wrestle with these things on a daily basis. To recognize that Jesus, you died once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. And so, Father, may your word penetrate our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.